Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. May I invite us to stand again as we read the word of God. And the Bible says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and yet others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We say amen to God's word. You may be seated. The author of Matthew invites us into a conversation, a discourse, if you may, a question and answer period a moment of interrogation that is taking place between Jesus and his disciples. It's a conversation about identity. It's a conversation about introspection, reflection, and assessment as to who exactly this Jesus is. Their master, their teacher, their Lord, their leader. There is, we will see in the text, some what you would call identity crisis. It is a crisis because there are different perceptions. People are gleaning different things and have come to different understanding of who they think this Jesus is. I've titled tonight's study, Crucial Conversations, Perception versus Reality. And so Matthew begins in chapter 16 by showing the Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus and asking him for a sign. The Bible tells us that they came to test him, which means that reveals what their motives were. And so Jesus said, you are wise enough, you are shrewd enough to discern the, 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 the weather But you are not smart enough, you are not perceptive enough, you are not attuned enough to God's reality to the extent where you can discern the signs of the time. 
No doubt they would have heard or personally experienced the ministry of Jesus Christ. For in the preceding text, we are brought to be made aware that he fed the thousands of people. There was a feeding of the 5,000s, and subsequent to that, there was a feeding of the 4,000s. He worked signs and wonders and miracles. In the book of Acts, we are told by the apostle that God anointed this Jesus. God anointed him, and he was going around doing good works and ministering the message of the kingdom. And so they asked him for a sign. Jesus gave them an answer. Despite the many miracles that Jesus would have worked, they wouldn't have been sufficient to convince the religious folks at the time that Jesus was the Christ. So their question essentially was to Jesus, prove to us that you are who you say you are. Jesus moves on from there, we are told, and he warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They thought that he was chiding them because they had forgotten to bring bread. But Jesus was essentially speaking about the doctrine of the Pharisees, the, the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. And so he moves on from there, and we are at our text tonight in verse 13. Geographically, this discussion is taking place at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a Palestinian city that is situated to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It is southwest of Damascus and was named Caesarea Philippi by Herod the Tetrarch. Herod named the city Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar Tiberius. So it was a joint name, Caesar and Philippi, Caesar and Philip. Now, it is important for us to know that this was a pagan place. We are told that this city, this place, these cities were given over to idolatry. In fact, historical studies reveal that a shrine was set up for the worship of the Greek god Pan. Also taking place in Caesarea Philippi was the idol worship of Caesar. And so, church, it is here in an unusual unlikely and ungodly place that the disciples are confronted by Christ himself, the Lord of glory, to give an answer, to give an account, to provide an update as to who they think he really is. There is a song that we used to sing back home where I'm from in Jamaica, and it says, everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, it says some people don't know. Everybody ought to know, but some people do not know. It is critically important for us, for all people to know who Jesus is. Who he is and who we see him to be is the difference between life and death. The Bible tells us that this is life eternal, that they may know you, the one true God, and your son Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Who he is and who we see him to be determines whether we are included or excluded from the family of God. Who he is and who we see him to be determines whether we are condemned 
or justified. So we must get Jesus' identity right. In our first verse there, verse 13, we want to walk through this text and look at a few things. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, he was asking them, what's the word on the street? What are folks saying? What have you been hearing about me? It is important for us to look at this verb, ask, for it was not just a simple ask. This verb in the original language uh, paints to us a picture of Jesus asking his disciples. He's asking from a position of relationship. Can we all agree that there are some questions we will not ask of some persons because we don't have a certain kind of relationship with them? And so Jesus is asking them some questions because he is their master, teacher, and Lord. It was not asked of the crowd. It was not asked of the Pharisees. Now we ask the question, who? In the original, this pronoun is an interrogative pronoun, which means picture being in a courtroom setting and you're on the witness stand. He's about to drill his disciples. He's about to drill down to the core of their belief system. Drill down to the perception that they have of him with respect to what was happening in and around them. What do they personally believe about him? And we could, we could all ask ourselves a question. What do I believe about Christ? If Christ were to come here today and ask us this question, who do you say that I am? What would my response be? What would your response be? The people were talking about Jesus. He obviously got their attention through his word and through his works. It's important for us to look at this term, son of man. We have probably heard it before, and it has been said that it is the messianic title for Jesus. It is a subtle title that he uses, but is nonetheless powerful and prophetic. If we look at some of the facts about the Son of Man, let us look at what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. In that chapter, Daniel the prophet saw his coming, his everlasting kingdom and dominion. As the son of man, Jesus has the power to forgive sins, which means he is God, because none can forgive sins but God. Mark tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. As a son of man, Jesus is Lord. Mark 2, 28 tells us, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Remember in the Old Testament, Yahweh told Israel, his covenant people, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. As the son of man, he died and was raised to life. This is tying in with his mission, the first half of his mission, if you may, regarding his messianic rule. 
Mark 8.31 tells us, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. As the Son of Man, he was a servant and his death paid the price for humanity's redemption. In Mark 10, 45, the Bible tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, as the Son of Man, he will return from heaven with power. We have just celebrated the Easter season and we reflected on the death of Christ the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. Mark 13, 26 tells us, And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. As a Son of Man, he is also preeminent. Mark 14, 62, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's move on now to verse 14. It was a popular view among the Jews that, well, we're at Matthew 16, verse 14. It was a popular view among the Jews that the Messiah would be a prophet. Remember Moses spoke of a prophet that God would in the future raise up a prophet like himself. And he urged Israel to listen to this prophet. Elijah's return was also mentioned by the prophet Malachi in chapter 4 verse 5. And Jeremiah in Ezra 2 verse 18. Some of the people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. Herod the Tetrarch, remember we spoke about Herod Antipas some weeks ago, the one who gave the orders to behead John the Baptist. It is said that he was suffering from a guilty conscience and he was wrestling and struggling with this idea of uh, reincarnation, the superstition of reincarnation. So he heard about the works and the ministry of Jesus and he said to himself, this must be John the Baptist returning to life. Some persons thought Jesus was Elijah, the Old Testament firebrand prophet who championed God's leadership over Israel during the reign of King Ahab. Elijah called the nation back to Jehovah. Elijah, we are told, was raptured to heaven without seeing death, snatched by a chariot of fiery horses, and he went to heaven. Jews were of the view, according to scripture, that Elijah would, Elijah's uh, coming back or Elijah's return would precede Messiah's coming. That he would come in the strength and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children back towards the Father. Jesus told his disciples that Elijah did come in that spirit, in the person of John the Baptist, but they did not listen to him. Some also thought, Jesus was Jeremiah. 
So there were different views, different ideas as to what Jesus is. But I want us to notice that all of these different uh, options, perceptions, paint Jesus in a prophetic light. Some way, somehow, he was seen as a prophet and merely a prophet. So the world's perception of who Jesus is, some would say he is a prophet. Is he a prophet? Yes, he is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. The world would see him as just a mere man. Was he a man? Is he a man? Yes, but he's more than a man. In verse 15, we are told that Jesus now turns to his disciples and asks them, but who do you say that I am? How many of us know that a walk with Christ is personal? We can't truly know him by association. We can't truly know him by simply being in a community surrounded by quote-unquote people who are like-minded just because you are born into a Christian home does not mean that you have a personal relationship with Christ. Does not mean that you know him, that you have a relationship with him. And so Jesus turns the spotlight on his disciples and now asks them, but who do you say? But who do you say that I am? The but here is interesting because this but is a transition word. It's a sharp turn and a contrast from the responses that they have just given which means to say that Jesus is not in agreement with the word on the street. He says, who do you say that I am? So he was speaking to all the disciples. Oftentimes we assume that people know. Jesus did not assume that his disciples fully grasp the question of who he really was. Unbelievers and believers do not share the same fundamental view about who Jesus is. The Bible tells us how can two walk together unless they agree. If the world had seen Jesus for who he truly was, they would be serving him. They would be submitting their lives to him. They would be following him. In Matthew 16, verse 16, we're moving down because we want to spend some time further down in the text. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now he asked all the disciples the question, but Simon responds in true Simon fashion. Because not only is he uh, impetuous and hasty, Simon has earned for himself the title of being the spokesperson for the group. And so Simon's response, though individual, is somehow reflective of what the entire group thinks. And so Simon Peter, and we'll get down into what his name means perhaps in the next verse. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The word Christ in the Greek is Christos. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that equivalent is Messiah. In the Greek, it is Christos. Christ means, or Christos means anointed one. Anointed one. To anoint means to smear or to rub with oil. Now this term anointed, remember it is said in the Old Testament, touch not the Lord's anointed. 
David did not stretch his hand to hurt Saul, even though he probably would have been well within his right because Saul was chasing him for no good reason. But he said, I cannot do this thing. I cannot stretch forth my hand to touch the Lord's anointed. And so there is a certain level of respect because the anointing symbolizes the presence of God at work in the life of the anointed. Other persons who were anointed in the Old Testament include prophets and priests. So kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, and priests were anointed. But to be anointed not, does not only mean to be smeared or to be rubbed with oil. To be anointed means to be set apart by God. To, anoint, to be anointed means to be called out as an uncommon. To be anointed means to be separated for a special assignment by God himself. And so we see all three offices, all three offices at work in Christ. For he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Now as Messiah, there was a prophecy that went forth We'll see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet prophesied to David, saying that there would not cease to be a here and here on his throne would rule perpetually, speaking about the end time reign of the Messiah. So it's interesting that Jesus comes on the scene, and the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel is to persuade his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the one who was spoken about, the one who was prophesied, the one Israel was waiting for to deliver them. And so Matthew, uh, Peter's response also includes that Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, if he is God's son, that means that God is his father. If God is his father, that means he is God. And so... It tells us that he is the living God. Remember we spoke about Caesarea Philippi that it was given over to idolatry. It was given over to the worship of objects that had hands but could not touch. That had eyes but could not see. That perhaps had feet but could not move. That perhaps had to be carried by their worshiper. But not this God that Peter got this revelation about. He says he is the living God, which means he exists, tying back to God's uh, name, God's title for himself in the Old Testament, which is I am. Remember when Moses said, ask God, who shall I tell the people that sent me? And he said, tell them that I am sent you. This is a very interesting expression because it uses the verb to be, which means that God is. He's a self-existent one. He always existed, he is existing now, and he will always exist. He is the true and living God. He is the uncreated creator. He is the first cause of all other subsequent causes. He does not depend on anyone or anything for his existence. He is self-existent. He lives and dwells outside of time, but he punctuates time every now and again to accomplish his, his purposes. So he is the living God. He's not a dead God, but he is the living God. And so 
this living God was also spoken by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. And he says, for they themselves, and he says, for they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve, here it is, the living and true God. This was not the first time this kind of recognition was taking place that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. If we look in Matthew 14, 33, we would see those who saw him walking on water, worshiping him as the Son of God. In fact, in John 1, verse 49, Nathaniel, one who was called by Jesus, one of his disciples, confessed him to be the Son of God. And so we move now to verse 17. This is where we'll spend some time. Now it says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. What is he saying here? He's saying that this revelation that Peter has received does not originate from a human source. His friends didn't tell him about it. He obviously did not hear it from the Pharisees and scribe. So the revelation does not originate from a human source. Paul declares in Galatians 1 verse 12 that the gospel he preached, watch this, was not received from man or humans, but through divine revelation. He had a personal encounter with Jesus. It was the Father who revealed the Son, Jesus, to Paul so that he could preach him among the Gentiles. But what does this word revealed mean? It is in the root, in the Greek language, where we get the word apocalypto. You ever speak about apocalypse? It means to uncover or to bring to light. It means to bring to the fore that which was once hidden and concealed. Do you know that Jesus cannot be discovered? Jesus cannot be discovered. He has to be revealed. For the Bible tells us that no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and he to whom he chooses to reveal. Jesus is not discovered, he is revealed. He was revealed to hearts, hearts that are willing and receptive and open to, 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 to come in agreement with what God is saying. And so, when we're even witnessing to others who are not saved or we're praying for unsaved loved ones, our prayer should be that God would, would open the blinded eyes, that God would remove the scales from their eyes, that God will give them a saving knowledge of the truth. Because salvation, church, is a work of God from start to finish. Paul tells us that by grace we are saved through faith and that not by ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. He supplies us with that saving faith and he gives us the grace that we need to respond to him. And so Jesus is not discovered, he is revealed. 
You can't go on a conquest to find him. You can't say, oh, I'm taking a trip to the Amazon. I'm trying to find Jesus. He has to be revealed. And the Bible tells us in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, And it says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Let's move on now to Matthew 16, verse 18. This is probably where we will camp out for a bit. And it says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is said by scholars that the, the word Peter or the words Peter and rock would be the same words if Jesus were speaking Aramaic. If Jesus were speaking Aramaic, he would be saying kefa. Kefa, which means stone or rock. But it is interesting that the author of our text, writing in Greek, he uses two different words. So the Greek word for Peter is... Petros. Petros means a stone or a pebble, a small rock isolated and strewn along the pathway that can be thrown. I want you to visualize with me Peter being like the stone in David's sling that slew Goliath. Jesus would use Peter to demolish the kingdom of darkness, to plunder hell as it were, and to populate heaven. The use of rock here could possibly have been used largely in reference to Peter's boldness, to his bravery, to his fearlessness, and would be integral to the advancement of the church through his role in spreading the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul refers to him as among the perceived pillars. However, his conduct was not always brave and fearless. Like many of us, we struggle and we stumble at times. There was an instance in the Bible where Jesus asked a person, do you believe that I can do this? And the response was, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And so, Peter struggled. We know that even after this discourse, after this exchange, he would later deny Christ. We know that in a couple verses following this, he would rebuke Christ. Because Christ was saying to them that he would die. He would be mistreated. He would be killed and he would rise again. And so Peter did not always get it right. One Bible teacher commented that rock, the word rock, was a prophetic declaration over Simon. He says it's what he would become, what he would accomplish for the kingdom. I want you to think about this with me for, for a bit. Oh, we're going somewhere. It's interesting that although Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, 
and have momentary lapses in his walk. He called him Peter, rock. Jesus says, you are. This is in the present tense, you are. Not you will be, but you are. Jesus calls those things that are not as though they are. He calls those things that are not as though they are. And so when he releases a word, when he speaks a word over your life, that is the spirit, that is the weight behind, that's the thought behind what he is conveying. When he speaks to you concerning destiny and purpose and you look at your life and you compare it with what God is saying, you're saying, how can this be? This rock, so the first rock is Peter, Petros. And then Jesus said, upon, upon this rock. This other word is Petra. So the first is Petros, and this one is Petra. The first word is a noun, speaking to an individual, a male. So it's a masculine noun. This word rock is in a different gender. It's a feminine gender, feminine word. Not to say that the rock is female, but in the Greek, it's in a different gender, right? So the first rock was a stone, isolated, strewn along the pathway, can be thrown. The second rock is a huge mass of rock. It's connected, it's solid, and it rises through the earth. It's like the rock of Gibraltar. It's solid and firm. There are several schools of thought, and I don't know if you have heard this, or someone mentioned to me about their curiosity in finding out what it, what it is about building upon this rock. Several schools of thought as to what Jesus meant by building his church on the rock. The first is this, that the rock is Jesus. The rock is, have you heard that before? Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock. Paul refers to Jesus as being Listen to what he said in Romans 9, verse 33. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says again in Romans 10, verse 3 to 4. And all it of the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So the first argument is that this rock that Jesus is speaking about is not Peter but is in fact Jesus himself. He's building his church upon himself. The second idea or the second argument is that the confession of Peter is the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. And what is the confession? That thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And in our faith walk with Christ, our confession is key. Because the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So it's important what we say, it's important our confession that is integral to our entrance into the family of God. And so this confession that Jesus is Christ, 
the Son of the living God, is an important confession for anyone and everyone who is saved. The third school of thought is that Jesus' teachings were the rock upon which he would build his church. Remember Jesus telling the, the parable or the story about a wise man, a foolish man, one who would build his house upon the sand. And he spoke about the wise man being those, that person who would hear his words and obey his words, being likened to someone who builds their house upon the rock. And the winds blew and the storms came, but the structure was able to stand. Why? Because it was built on the rock. The, the, other, the other school of thought, which uh, might make some of us very uncomfortable, is that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. In looking at what this really means, we have to move on in the text. So let's look at the word build. That is in the future tense, which means Christ is saying, this is something I am going to do. It is important for us to know that Jesus does the building. So I want you to have in mind that whether it is his teachings that he will build the church on, whether it is the confession of Peter that he would build the church on, or whether it is himself that he will build the church on, Christ is building the church. And that is important. Now, the reference to Peter is very interesting. Because yes, Jesus is building the church, but if he is building the church on Peter... It is because of his strong faith in Christ. Peter would go on to increase in faith and boldness. Remember when he were, they were thrown in jail. And they were told no longer to preach in this name, the name of Christ. And their response was that we must obey God rather than man. So this reference to Peter could be in reference to his strong faith in Christ and that he would play a key role, an instrumental role, a pivotal role in setting up or if you may, laying the groundwork that was to follow. Jesus would be saying here that I am going to build the church and I'm going to use you to accomplish it. I will build is connected to the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. At a casual glance, it may seem ridiculous for Jesus to say that he will build the church on Peter, knowing that Peter was a mere mortal man, who, by the way, he died, who denied Jesus, and who rebuked him. Therefore, we must connect rock to I will build to get a clearer understanding that rock means foundational. In other words, Peter would play a key role in leading that charge, in setting the initial groundwork. And we will look at some of the things that Peter did as a key leader in the early church. Remember, he stood up with the other apostles 
to preach on the day of Pentecost. We are told that 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000. And so Peter was instrumental in the development of the early church in its formative years. Other things that Peter did that would suggest to us his important role in the establishment of the church is the fact that Jesus instructed him to feed his sheep. Jesus said, feed my sheep and feed my lambs. Remember, he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Three times he asked him. Also in his role in Acts 1, we see Peter leading the charge. Remember, Judas had hung himself. Peter was the one who stood up and brought the attention of the apostles back to the scriptures. In this encounter, a replacement was selected for Judas, setting right the leadership structure of the church. Peter was instrumental in early church decisions. He would give an opinion on how Gentile believers should live by not imposing certain Jewish restrictions upon them. So he did play an important role. There is an extreme position that I want to highlight here. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's a view that's commonly held within Roman Catholic circles. And the view is that Peter was somewhat of a super rabbi that he had some supreme authority, that he was infallible, that he was absolute. The view is so extreme that it's said that Peter um, had the power to, to bequeath, as it were, to pass on through succession his apostleship and his leadership to other leaders within the Roman Catholic Church, namely the popes. There is no scriptural support for this. There is no support in the Bible. In fact, once Peter disappears from the scene, we see a transition as to how God would expand his church. No longer do we hear about Peter, but we hear about Paul. We hear about people like Barnabas and, and um, Silas. So God would shift. So Peter did not have absolute authority. Neither was he infallible. Remember the encounter where Paul had to rebuke Peter because he separated himself from the Gentile believers when his, when his Jewish uh, friends, believers came. And Paul said, I confronted him to his face for his hypocrisy. So Peter was not infallible. Now let's look at the word church. It is the word ecclesia in the Greek. It is a mixture of two words. The first being ek, which means out or from or to. And the next word kaleo, which means to call. Essentially the church, the church is the called out. The church is that group of people who God has called out of the world, out of a life of sin, out from the ways of the old man into his kingdom, into his family. It's the universal body of believers who have been redeemed, who have put their faith and their trust in Christ for salvation. So ecclesia means that we have been called out of something and we have been called into something. Uh, the ecclesia refers to those who have responded to God's divine summons to come out from among them and be separate to be joined to God. 
Uh, it is important for us to recognize that Christ will build his church. It is a singular word. It's not a plural word. He's not building his churches. He's not building denominations, but he's building his church. For there is one church, one universal body of Christ. There might be many denominations, many expressions of different kinds of worship. Some are singing loud, some are quiet, some stand to read the scriptures, some have liturgy, some are very, well, some are more free than others, some move without much programs and thought and planning. But there is one universal church, one body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, 4 to 5, Paul tells us that there is one body, one spirit, even as you are called, one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. And so the church is singular. It is the body of Christ. Its head is in heaven and its body, the expression is on earth. There is one church, one true church, one true church. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now gates can mean two things. Gates symbolize access. Gates symbolize authority and power. It is at the gates that the elders, the leaders would meet to counsel with each other, to reach decisions. Gates are a place of, of decision making. Gates are a place of strategizing. And so gates could mean the gates of hell, the strategies of hell, the schemes of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. Gates of hell. Gates of hell could also mean the gates of death, where Hades is referring to death. We know that Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Now, while we have come alive spiritually in Christ, we are still dying. Do you know any Christians who have died recently? Death is still, no pun intended, alive and well. For the Bible tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and after death, there comes the judgment. But this final enemy will be swallowed up because the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ will return. And death is defeated because Christ is alive and well. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the grave with all power in his hands. In the first message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he told them explicitly that Jesus rose from the dead because death could no longer hold its grip on him. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. I lay it down only to take it back up again. And the Bible said that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if that spirit lives in you and me, the same spirit will quicken our mortal bodies. Oh my God, the church praise him right there. And so death is defeated because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Now when it speaks of the keys, keys now is tying back also into gates which symbolize power and authority. So the keys of the kingdom gives permission to open and to close, to permit or to disallow. So Jesus gave Peter authority. And Jesus has given you and I authority. But the keys... 
the keys that are being referenced here symbolizes Peter's action to unlock the gospel. To unlock the gospel. To make it available. Remember Jesus gave them the great commission in Matthew chapter 28. Where it says the gospel will be taken to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in using these keys, remember we said to look at Peter not as the foundation as we would think or that, yeah, that foundation that we would normally think of, but foundational, strategic, instrumental in leading the charge in the establishment of the early church. So Peter in Acts 2, we see unlocks the gospel to the Jews. We're talking about keys. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, we see Peter unlocking the gospel to Samaria. In Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius, we see Peter unlocking the gospel to the Gentiles. So he is using the keys that Christ has given him. Let's move down to look at. Oh, let me touch on this. All right, so. Remember, we're talking about the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let's look at a few examples from the Word of God. In Acts chapter 8, we are told that Saul persecuted the church. Saul, the Bible says, breathing out cruelty, persecuted the church, hunted down Christians to put them in prison. But Saul had an encounter with the builder of the church, Jesus Christ. And he was converted. Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. For whoever fights against this church that Jesus is building, he takes it personally. And he will not sit back and do nothing. So Christ converts this Paul and used him to spread the gospel. In fact, Christ said he is a chosen vessel of mine to spread the good news to the Gentiles. And so in Acts 12, we see Herod persecuting the church, the gates of hell, the, the strategies of hell, persecuting the church. Herod had put Peter in prison. He had killed James, the brother of John. The Bible tells us that the church prayed because there is power in prayer. The church prayed and Peter was miraculously freed from prison. What was Herod's demise? The Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord struck him down dead. The gates of hell will not prevail. And so continuing in this theme, Paul tells us when he speaks to the resiliency of this church that Christ is building in Romans 8, 35 to 39. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now let's look at some essential features of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22 the church is the body of Christ. The church is a united body. One universal authentic church. We mentioned that before. Christ is the glue 
Paul calls him the chief cornerstone or the cornerstone who holds the entire structure together. Christ is building the church and he is using us to do it. He is using us. The Bible tells us that he ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. He gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists, he gave some pastors and teachers. Uh, and it tells us it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all come in the unity of the spirit unto a perfect man, unto a mature man. And so the church belongs to Christ. He owns the church. Christ empowers and protects the church. Now in verse 19, Christ said, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now he's not talking about prayer here. He's not talking about prayer here. Binding and loosing demons and devils, Satan. I bind you in the name of Jesus. No, that's not what he's talking about here. The kingdom of God has both a present and a future reality to it. It is what theologians call the already not yet. There is a delicate tension happening. So already Christ has come. He has ushered in the kingdom of God. He is ruling and reigning in a spiritual sense in our hearts. And so he has initiated, he has inaugurated his kingdom. And it is now presently, currently in effect in the lives of the ecclesia. They call out one, those who have come to faith in Christ. So already it is, we are seeing signs of it, but not yet. So it has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. Because we look to heaven from whence will appear our Savior. He will come again in the clouds with power and great glory. To save us not only from the power of sin but from the presence of sin and the penalties of sin. So it's present and it's future. And so when we speak about binding and loosing in rabbinic terminology. It speaks about permitting or prohibiting certain actions and activities. So the one entrusted to bind and loose would have the power to declare what is fitting and what is not fitting as it relates to the teachings and the words of Christ. And so heaven and earth are working together in ushering in God's rule and reign. Remember we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Watch this, as in heaven so in the earth. So heaven always precedes earth. Heaven always precedes earth. It makes no sense us binding on earth, but God has not bound in heaven. It makes no sense for us loosing on earth, but God has not loosed in heaven. And so before we go around binding and loosing and chasing and doing all these things, let's check the manual. Let's check the will of God. For this God will always honor. He said, I set my word. It is settled forever in heaven. My words will not return unto me void. I will hasten over my words to perform them. The only thing God is obligated to is his word. He honors his word above his very name. The Bible tells us that the word of God is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces. It divides between soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we ought to know what the will of God is before we try to be presumptuous sometimes. 
Sometimes we can't wait on God. Sometimes we get anxious. Sometimes we don't know what that will is. We have no clarity. But we work with this until Christ makes it clear. What do you do? What is God's will for my life? Check this. Follow this. It's almost like you're driving on the highway and you're following your GPS. Notice it does not give instruction until a turn is coming up. So you follow the general will. Follow the general direction of God until you sense that in your spirit, the voice of God speaking, say, hey, take this left turn. Hey, take this right turn. Stay on the course of what God has revealed in Scripture. For even prophetic words must come in line with this. It is the checks and balances imposed on every word that is spoken. It is the foundation and so it is the authority with which the apostles would, would bind and loose. So order is important. Heaven moves first and earth responds by coming in agreement. One commentator notes that binding and loosing really deals with Peter's authority to declare through the gospel God's standard for entrance into or exclusion from the kingdom. He goes on to say that Peter is the mere instrument through which God sovereignly acts to declare the terms under which sins are forgiven or retained. Now in the last verse, 16 verse 20, the Bible tells us that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So at the beginning of it, People are having all different perceptions and ideas of who he is. They see him merely as a prophet, merely as a man, but not as Messiah. Not as Messiah. And so we move from obscurity to clarity because God the Father had opened Peter's eyes and revealed to him. And then we move back now to obscurity where Jesus is veiling his identity. Jesus is very strategic. Remember that instance where he healed somebody and he said, tell no one about it. And the person went and published it all abroad. And the Bible said that he had to confine himself to the wilderness, to other places. And so, as believers in Christ, here is the application. We are to be sensitive to God's timing and flow. We could do the right thing at the wrong time. And delay or derail some things in God. Right thing done at the wrong time is disobedient. And so the people had a concept of who the Messiah ought to be. They thought that he would be a warrior king. Who would liberate them from Roman oppression and overthrow the Roman regime. This was not Jesus' mission in his first coming. He's coming back again. Because one thing about the prophetic, especially in the Old Testament, when they saw it, our theologians likened it to seeing a mountain. Picture two mountains lining up perfectly. So they look at it and they see one thing. Yes, he's coming, his first advent. But there is another mountain that's directly behind it and lined up, which means, yes, he's coming once and then he's coming again. So on the first half, the first tranche of his mission, 
was to die for the sins of humanity, was to be that lamb who was slain, was to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, was to hang on a cross. He said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Bible said he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So his messianic mission in the first aspect of it was to save Israel, was to save humanity in a spiritual sense. And when he comes again in the cloud with power and great glory as the Son of Man, he will rule not as a Savior but as a reigning King. As a reigning king, he will come again. And that is the second aspect of his messianic mission. And so they missed him at the first time. And the Bible said they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. I don't know who you are or where you are, but he is coming back again. And the onus on us is to be ready for he is coming. He will split once more the eastern sky. Remember, he started out in verse 1 saying, you can discern the weather. Oh, it's going to be fair weather. Oh, oh, we're going to have snow today. We're going to have ice rain today. But you cannot observe the signs of the time. Believers, prophecies are fulfilling in front of our eyes. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes in diverse places. Famines and pestilence. The signs of the time are appearing everywhere. And so we ought to be ready, be ready, be ready. He is coming back again, as he said. And so the lesson is, the lesson is, that we are to pray and ask God to give us eyes, open our eyes to see, open our spirit to be alert to what he is doing. The people did not know Jesus. They were fed by him, but they did not know him. They were healed by him, but they did not know him. They were delivered by him, but they did not know him. They were taught by him, but they did not know him. Seeing Jesus for who he is, is important. Today, many false notions and perceptions about Jesus abound. People have conjured up a Jesus in their mind that is not biblical. People have fantasized a Jesus does, that does not exist in the scriptures. As in the first advent, many missed his messianic identity to die as the lamb, the suffering servant. And he's coming back again. The righteous shall reign with him. And the wicked shall be cast into outer darkness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Do you know Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul mature in the faith? In Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, he said this, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. May I invite us to stand as we close in prayer. Who do you say that this Jesus is? For who you see him to be is the difference between life and death. When we see Jesus, we get a revelation of our assignment, of our identity, of our mission. And so what is your mission? What is your assignment to the body of Christ? Whether Peter is the rock, whether his teachings are the rock, whether Jesus himself is the rock, the fact remains that it is his church and he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail 
And he's building that church through you and I. And so, let us close in prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for what you have said to us tonight. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord of the church. You have called us out, Lord God, from a place of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord God, for your grace extended to us to respond to the divine summons. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing in this hour, in this moment. God, quicken our hearts, Lord, to what you're doing in these last days and in this season. Cause us not to fall asleep on the mission. But God, cause us to arise from our slumber, knowing that it is high time. Knowing that, God, our salvation is now closer than it was before. You said, behold, I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice. And so you are very close and you are coming back again. Establish us, Father. Settle our feet. Strengthen the foundation upon which our faith is built. We trust you, Lord, that you are building the church. And the schemes of hell will not prevail against it. We entrust ourselves into your hands. But you are the God who fights for us. You are undefeated. You are the champion. And so, Lord God, I ask you to minister to your people, Lord, in this moment. Whatever the needs are, I pray, God, that you'll meet them at the point of their need. God, I pray that you will show yourself strong and mighty. Touch, heal, deliver, set free by your power in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we speak against all hell's assignments, Lord, and we command them to submit to your will. Father, we, we pray, God, that you'll bind your people to your will tonight. So in heaven, Lord God, let it be on the earth. Cover us under your blood as we go, Father. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen.